But what about the four elephants? For 750 years, I believed I knew the truth, that the earth rested upon the shoulders of four mighty elephants. Forget about the four elephants. Who stood on the shell of a large and noble turtle. Look at the turtle. Uh-huh. And then four more elephants. Around which the sun and the moon and all the stars revolve. But now... Through the fathomless depths of space swims the star turtle, the great Atuin. And on its back are three nerds trying to figure out just what it is that makes Sir Terry Pratchett's worth both timely and timeless. So grab your steaks, brew your tea, and join us on our journey through Carpe Jugulum and the complete discography. All right, so tonight we are just a group of three. Which seems appropriate for this book. Which is appropriate for this book. Yeah. And we are discussing tonight the 23rd novel in the Discworld series, which I checked beforehand this time. <laughs> I just want, I, I'm just going to like change the, I'm going to change the number in the notes one day just to fuck with you. <laughs> The 23rd book in the Discworld series, Carpe Jugulum, printed in 1998. So we are getting close to this to the next century. This is a chonker of a book. Justin, Anna, how you doing? I'm great. Honestly, I'm, you know, it's, I never get to answer this question because on Babpod, nobody ever asks how I'm doing. But no, it happened once. <laughs> um, and you mocked us endlessly for it no jude mocked you i was like touched (laughs) (laughs) no um, i'm good i got to read a book about vampires and vampires are like i would say they are my bullshit this is it's just i have many i have many bullshits but this is one of them and and uh in honor of this i just before the recording finished the uh most recent season of what we do in the shadows which mm-hmm. has a hell of a season finale. Yeah. It's so sad. <laughs> Poor Gizmo. We'll see we'll see what happens next season. Yeah. I'm excited. And yeah, we are on a tipping point. Uh this is really where we hit a just a bunch of incredibly critical books uh to to the Discworld series. The next ten or so I personally consider some of his best most angry work uh this one carpe jugulum it's it's close for me but anyway i guess we should do our titles i'm justin and i have already restocked my supply of wild roses and holy bullets i'm aaron and i have a cart full of watermelons and i'm all out of bubblegum or something i'm anna and right now i'm dying for a cup of tea so the book opens on uh, a naming, um, or planning for a naming, uh, as Megrat and King Varence have uh, produced offspring. Hooray! Count Magpir and family, vampires from Uberwald, are invited to the naming of Megrat and King Varence's daughter to be conducted by the Omnian priest, Mightily Oats. During the party after the ceremony, Varence tells Nanny and Og and Agnes Nitt that the Count has informed him that the Magpir family intends to move into Lanker Castle and take over. Due to a type of hypnotism, everyone seems to consider this plan to be perfectly acceptable. 
Only the youngest witch, Agnes, and the Omnian priest, Mightily Oats, seem to be able to resist the vampiric mind control due to their layered personalities. Because of her ability to resist his influence, the Magpyr's son, Vlad, is attracted to Agnes and makes many advances on her, including trying to convince her to become a vampire herself. Meanwhile, Granny Weatherwax, feeling slighted by not receiving an invitation to the ceremony, she did, but that's another story, has left her cottage empty and seems to be working toward a life in a cave, almost like a hermit. After they have left the hypnotic influence of the vampires, Agnes, Nanny Og, and Magrat attempt to convince her to help them save Lanker, but uh, without success, even after Granny is informed that her invitation was stolen by a magpie. The three witches return to Lanker to take on the Count and his family without Granny. But without, because the Magpier family have built up a tolerance for the normal methods of defeating a vampire, such as garlic, bright light, religious symbols, water, etc., this is not so easily done. Just when it seems all is lost, Granny Weatherwax comes through the front door, soaked to the bone, and swaying with exhaustion. Nanny Og and Magrat use Granny's assault upon the Count as a distraction to escape, leaving Granny, Agnes, and Brother Oats with the vampires. Granny is unable to get through the Count's mental defenses, and the Magpires feed on her with the intention of transforming her into a vampire. We get our first Igor, yay, or Igor, uh, who is the servant of the Magpires. He is a traditionalist who spends his spare time breeding and distributing spiders for the dark corners of the castle, among other things. The Magpires hate him and his more gothic-than-thou attitude, uh, as Igor tries to keep the old ways alive. Igor's impression of the current Count Magpier is that he is too modern, whereas Igor prefers traditionalist, my god, I can't even do it, traditionalist methods of vampirism. Nanny Og, Magrat, and Magrat's infant daughter, Esmeralda Margaret Note Spelling of Lanker, escape with the help of the rebelling Igor, who appears to have a crush on Nanny, uh, but are forced to detour to Uberwald and end up in the Magpier's castle. Agnes is kidnapped for the Magpier's son and their clan, who give chase by air. Granny Weatherwax struggles against the vampirism inside her and thrusts the pain this causes into the iron of the Castle Forge's anvil. She's only able to defeat the vampirism after she looks inside herself and faces the darker side of her nature, but the struggle leaves her barely able to stand, let alone defeat the Count. Meanwhile, King Varence is, quote-unquote, rescued by the newest inhabitants of Lanker, a tribe of Pictsies known as the Nakmek Fiegels. These hard-drinking, hard-fighting Smurf relatives have been sent by Nanny Og to rescue the king, more on that later, and remove the vampiric influence from him. They are a little too successful, and the king returns to his castle in a berserker rage, armed with a bronze weaponry from another age. While Magrat and her daughter hide in Igor's dungeon quarters, Nanny and Igor begin fighting against the Magpiers using the considerable stock of holy water and other religious symbols that were originally collected by the old Count Magpier, who is described as having been a sportsman. Surprisingly, for the Magpier family at least, the old-fashioned ways to defeat vampires that they thought themselves protected against start to work again. They don't understand what the problem is, although they do start to have bizarre cravings for hot, sweet, strong tea and biscuits. A combination that has them feeling quite upset, being... Not their usual craving for blood. All is revealed when Granny, who has helped Mightily Oats to Uberwald by being carried by him, tells him that far from turning her into a vampire, they have instead been weatherwaxed, 
she had magically borrowed her own blood, which they drank, allowing her past their mental defenses. The Magpiers find themselves unable to harm Magrat's daughter or do anything else that Granny herself is unable to do, for example, fly. They're even more horrified when they find out that Igor has reawakened the old Count Magpier, having gone into his crypt and spilled a drop of blood onto the old Count's cremation ashes, and that the people of Uberwald would prefer the old Count to their new, modern type of vampirism. Oates gives the new Count a mortal wound across the neck with an axe, though, of course, for vampires, mortal wounds aren't necessarily the end, and the old Count is left to teach the two young Magpiers, Lacrimosa and Vlad, the old ways. The three vampires are last seen turning into a flock of magpies and disappearing into the darkness of the castle roof. The witches, the priest, and the infanta head home to Lanker. Obviously, I skipped over a lot of stuff. Uh, read the book. Yeah, it's a 400. It's like a, it's nearly a 400 pager. It's a lot. It's a good one. Yeah. Spoilers, I guess, for the rest of this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we got some old characters and some new ones. Although, um, even some of the new ones are sort of referencing older older concepts that Terry is resurfacing here, uh, like Mightily Oats. Yeah, yeah. Um, Mightily Oats is really interesting because he's um, the sort of evolution of Brutha from mm-hmm. Small Gods, because the, yeah. that's the last main place we saw Omnianism. I mean, there is the there is um, Corporal what's his face. Oh, visit the unworthy, with, or, uh, unrighteous with pamphlets. There we go. Yeah, um, yep. who, who's I, I think was our was our first look at modern Omnianism. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but he's he's kind of a bit character oh, yeah. in the Watch, and and uh, Oates has a substantially bigger role to play. Yeah, including showing us that the that Omnianism is just kind of more schisms than like a bag of cats. I don't know. Um, it's, it's not the unified religion that, that, uh, Constable Visit seems to think it is, um, because Oates is very much aware of every single schism that seems to happen last Tuesday. I think it's the difference, but I like, I think the difference that like the difference between those is going to be like your average Protestant, um, (laughs) and... (laughs) And a theology like, student, and, and your theol, and your like theology students. Yeah, um. yeah. Oates has kind of been in the thick of it in the Citadel for the last whatever amount of time, whereas mm-hmm. Visit is sort of I mean, he's off in Ankh Pork doing his own thing. Yeah, <laughs> prosthesizing <laughs> with pamphlets. Yeah, mm-hmm. like Visit is the person who like. If you asked him what the Council of Nikea was, would be like, I don't know what that is. <laughs> I don't know, but it has something to do with shoes. <laughs> <laughs> um, meanwhile, yeah. like, my, the Oates is like, oh yes, the, the schism of the breakfast of... <laughs> Which I do sort of kind of love of Omnianism of like, no, we have to have a schism over everything. Well, and it's it's such a different omnianism from what we see in small gods where you know everybody ha- has been, you know, rigidly kept to one precise dogma. And yeah. uh-huh. it's really interesting to see that evolution. Yeah, they've they've given up um of religious wars for religious internal dogmatic wars. Much less much less bloodshed and much less burning. Yes. Uh, and then you know the, the, it's sort of reflected in a in an almost Brutha like 
characteristic in in uh, Oates because it's this tension of what he says versus what he thinks too. Yeah. Mm. Um, speaking of uh, two people in one, uh, Agnes has returned from the big city. Yeah, and the the concept of Perdita has changed a little bit since the last mm-hmm. time we saw Agnes. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And by a little, I mean substantially, like a complete rewrite. Mm-hmm. Or or like crystallization, as opposed yeah. to sort of something that, sh- that Agnes thinks to herself. Yeah, because like back in Masquerade, Perdita was the kind of fantasy fantasy that Agnes had for herself of like, you know, the fancy person who she would be in the big city with a fancy name and et cetera, et cetera. And that's kind of evolved to be a concrete aspect of her personality that's with her all the time rather than just someone she's pretending to be. Yeah, it's a secondary identity that I think we can get into like a little bit of like would be something that we'd probably refer to as like like the, the academically at the time would have been referred to as dissociative identity disorder of like the Perdita is like a separate person or a separate identity uh within that um which goes into some interesting stuff especially like if you look at how people how people uh per- currently look at like plural theory and systems. It's it's interesting. I think I think that's something that we're planning to get into later on in the mm-hmm. episode too. Mm-hmm. Um, it's nice to see Magrat back. She's just as competent as ever, which yeah. is nice. I, I swear, I feel like she's even more competent now. Like mm-hmm. that that she's no longer shy the way that she was. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I feel like she has. I, I'm I'm purely headcanoning this at this point, but it feels like she has like sort of like she's become a bit more like assertive as a response to variance. Yeah, uh, because somebody actually needs to run that kingdom. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, or at least the house. Well, some somebody has to to make sure that Varence eats breakfast while he's reinventing the modern Lanker, and somebody needs to make sure that like. The peasants actually eat breakfast <laughs> while Varence is reinventing the modern yeah. lager. Um, that I feel like Megrat probably does a lot of the like maintaining the practical aspects of the kingdom. Oh, speaking of the castle, I completely omitted the the entire B plot with Hajizarg and the Phoenix. Ah, uh, oh well. <laughs> well, gotta read the book, guys. <laughs> Another one of my favorite bit characters. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I am a person who has multi who who has put all of my skill points possible into control bird. <laughs> <laughs> Nanny, of course, be, being the the um, sort of wobbling back and forth between the other one and the mother in in this in this um, book, uh, as Granny sort of comes in and out of the coven, uh, and she's just as delightful as usual. Granny has. I don't know what what do we say about Granny in this book because like she's definitely struggling with with she's going her. through it yeah she's yeah. and she's largely absent for like the front half of the book mm-hmm. intentionally yeah we have a few we have a few scenes with her but she's not you know she's not participating in the narrative which mm-hmm. is interesting to see because she's usually all up in the narrative yeah and then we have our vampires. Yes. 
new modern vampires. Yes, these these vampires are the wrong kind of genre savvy. They're like, oh, hey, because magic is belief. If we slowly, you know, if we slowly expose ourselves to the things that we are supposed to be fearful of, we can overcome them. Um, so they, they know how the Discworld magic works in there, and they are deciding like, oh, hey, we're going to be the new generation of vampires. Which is really interesting to see. Yeah. And I, I feel like, I swear that that, like, subconsciously inspired a bunch of what I've done with, like, you know, some tabletop role-playing games of, you know, the concept of, like, you know, what you are affected by as a vampire largely depends on what you think you're affected by. So it was interesting to come back to this and be like, oh, maybe that's where that came from huh. as an idea in my head. Mm-hmm. Thanks, Terry. Good idea. <laughs> it it definitely is really a, a sort of power of belief kind of book. Mm-hmm. Well, in in particular, too, there's the... um. There's a point where you know, the the exposure therapy really like backfires because the the daughter of the vampire set is like you have been training me with like all of these holy symbols and now I see them fucking everywhere. You have like <laughs> the only thing you trained me to do is see patterns and I wouldn't even know that that was a goddamn holy symbol. Like <laughs> if you hadn't done those flashcards, Dad. <laughs> That's it's some real great. get the child burned out. <laughs> um. So, uh, aside from the vampire stuff, which we'll all, you know specifically, which we'll obviously get into uh, as we go, uh, Justin, what what were your sort of broad impressions? So, the first book of this that this uh, that this reminded me of. Do not think I do, like. Hear me out here. <laughs> was Color of Magic because. Like The Color of Magic and The Light Fantastic, Terry is lampooning a specific genre. In Color of Magic, it is that now pretty much dead subgenre of like sword and sandals adventure. In this book, however, what is being parodied are horror films, specifically monster movies and very specifically hammer films. Mm -hmm. Those have aged gloriously. Yeah. um, And are still very much alive there. And so every genre reference is great in this compared to Color of Magic, where it's like, is this fucking Dragon Riders a Pern thing going on here? <laughs> yeah, it makes it a lot more accessible as as a book. Yeah, and it's it's something that's like it's it's a lot more joyous and wink wink nudge nudge. You're in on the joke with us, and overall, it's just like it's a stronger book. Uh, but yeah, it's a. Uh, it's delightful. It's funny the 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 book that it immediately reminded me of weirdly enough was the uh was Small Gods. You know, partially obvi- because of the obvious continuation from uh from Bertha to um to Oates, but you know the a lot of the sort of a lot of the thinking about you know, well just because it's written down doesn't mean it's true the really sort of threads from there uh, in my head. I think that when I read Carpe Jugulum last, I hadn't very recently read Small Gods. So I think maybe I was primed to see it this time. Mm -hmm. 
that that was sort of where my head was at reading this. It's it's a, it's a fun book. It's not my favorite witch's book. Um, you know, Lords and Ladies will still sort of take that crown for me. And I think that's sort of in part because it's in it's in a transition period between um, sort of the, the heart of the, the witches section uh, of the books and then sort of what we're going to see in a couple months with uh, We Free Men. Yeah. And it's directly setting up a bunch of stuff for We Free Men. Mm-hmm. Uh, I I would put it, I think it's a really nice bookend actually to Weird Sisters mm-hmm. because I would, I would also put Weird Sisters into that same category that, that Justin was saying of, you know, really going after a specific genre, um, having, you know, if you know the genre, very recognizable tropes and references. I think that it's, you know, obviously we've come a long way since Weird Sisters. Um, the writing is a lot better. The characters are a lot better formed. Um, the plotting is, you know, a lot smoother. But I feel like I feel like the two of them make a really nice set of bookends for mm. um it, and it's it's kind of interesting because we've got um almost this like oscillation in the witches' books, right? That we have um Weird Sisters, which is um quite good. Then we have um which is abroad, which is has has problems mm-hmm. um then we have lords and ladies which is amazing and then and then masquerade which also has its problems and then here here we're back kind of you closing out the arc with something that you know, i would put it broadly on par with weird sisters mm-hmm. i think it's a better book but I, but i'm kind of comparing it to other books of the same era in Terry's writing as well. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It, it really feels like sort of the peak of granny's power treadmill. Yeah. You know, the, the you've been weather waxed is, you know, I, I have masks on the brain, but it's, that's definitely a moment of truth. Yeah. Kind of burning right there. Uh, and aside from that, I feel like it, it's just kind of a solid witch's book that I think the plot isn't necessarily the strongest, but there's a ton of really great character stuff, a lot of really good button moments, and it's fun as hell to read. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, it's the witches, instead of the witches going abroad, it's the witches, as you said, Justin, visit the Hammer Films universe. Yeah. So let's talk about some uh, main themes or theses. I think one of the interesting ones that we get into here is the the, there's a lot of instances that get touched on about the difference between belief stories and and how the and how it turns from a story into myth into legend like we get a lot of that happening through the book which sort of culminates in what the the moment that i that actually like got me surprised when i read this because i was like i did not see that coming out of nowhere um when oats takes the axe and is like well, an axe isn't a holy symbol. Well, maybe now it will be <laughs> i was just like shit damn yeah. Yeah. Yeah, the, the the when he's trying to light the fire uh in the rain in the wilderness, uh it took me a couple of read-throughs to really get what he was doing, but it was very much the like that that classic joke about, you know, God's like, "Well, I sent you a guy in a boat and a helicopter, and what else do you want me to do?" But, you know, he was like, "Oh, I have paper." 
it burns. <laughs> yep. Yeah, I, I agree. You know, it's it's this it's the 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 power and conflict of tradition and story. Um, it's it's telegraphed all the way at the beginning with Agnes and Nanny debating the different versions of the same poem about magpies. Mm-hmm. But then mm-hmm. it's you know it's this that's that thread throughout like the the like myriad ways to kill or not kill vampires, um, which apparently were all real fit folk traditions from oh, like yeah. our world, uh, down to like there's a reason I said wild roses and holy bullets instead of <laughs> garlic and crosses. Yeah. <laughs> Everyone treats Granny like a local deity. You know, she's she's basically a faith tradition in and of herself. You know, Oates struggling with faith versus pragmatism. It's all of that, like, you know, the story versus the story. Yeah. This is also a further evolution of Terry musing on what, it, what does it mean to think like a witch? Uh-huh. Um, which will continue to evolve. But we've... Like I said, we've come a long way since Weird Sisters. Um, the foundations were there at that point, but this is a fantastic evolution of it. I think that there's also a lot in this about kind of what makes evil evil. Um, because we've got, you know, just taking the vampires, we have the the Magpiers who are, you know, sort of like, civilized vampires right that you know they 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 don't take any more than they need usually and they don't kill people who don't deserve it or um you know they they would only kill people who'd be put to death anyway or what whatever their rationalizations are and of course Um, we'll line up the entire populace at you know at midnight so that all of the the people have who are who are turning in you know hitting their adulthood we can feed on them for the first time. Yeah, like that it's this sort of weird civilized thing as compared to the you know the monster movie, you know, uh scary scary monster in the castle sort of thing, but you know, th- there's the aspect that the scary monster movie dude was a lot he was sporting. <laughs> Mm-hmm. You know that he um he, he would leave just casually placed around the the castle uh this, like it, it's like for 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 the older vampires it's not a, it's not it's not like oh I want to meet it's like no this is a game and an important cultural activity and, yeah. and but, if I don't give them wins every now and then they might take it away from me permanently right right yeah, and it's it's like and it's a whole thing of like iron sharpens iron mm-hmm. right exactly and Terry has a a really interesting musing in this that the idea that you kind of you can kind of boil down evil or at least like where evil starts to treating people like things. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think Granny says that it's sin rather than evil, but six of one half dozen of the other, I think. And it's a concept that we've seen before, too. Yeah. Yeah, I think that there's I think that there's evils that don't boil down to that, you know, evil acts against the environment or something like that, um, that don't necessarily have that specific root. But it's it's really, I, I think that Terry really hit on something there. Um, and that's also, that's also something that, that notion, I think, is something that we'll see carried through for 
the rest of the books. Yeah. In particular, Snuff. Hmm, yeah. One other thing that really is a through line of the book is is that sort of small, clear voice inside of you. Because all three of the characters that get sort of principal story time, uh, Agnes, Granny, and Oates, through this entire book are struggling, wrestling with an internal voice. For those of you who have read ahead, it, it feels, at least to me, like second and third thoughts. Yeah, for sure. You'll get there soon, Justin. Don't worry. Soon. So soon. So do we want to jump ahead to the trope bucket? <laughs> so I, I just want to like put like a big bucket that says vampire and just <laughs> pour it all over the podcast. Yeah. <laughs> um, I mean, it, it's really just like I want to I want to thank you, Terry, for just making I've made this little country in the middle of the disc and it's just horror filled land. <laughs> yep. Yep. Oh boy, you don't know how right you are. <laughs> oh, it's so good. I love Uberwald. Yeah. Um, and we're gonna get so much more of it next month. Yeah, it's fantastic. And and Igor. Oh my god. <laughs> Igor. I just love this. <laughs> I, I love this boy who's just like. I just want to be a stock character. I don't like. I I I want every plot twist to like. I want to see it coming a mile away, and I want to run towards it. And he's just like, I just want to live for the aesthetic. And honestly, bless him. And scraps, too. Scraps. There's, there's so many significant ellipses in this book as well. Oh, hold on. Let me, let me pull out some of my favorites. <laughs> no, you don't want white wine. The red is much more colorful. <laughs> and, and of course, the greatest one ever, lifted directly from Mr. Stoker himself. I do not drink wine. <laughs> I, I love it. It's just like, I was just like, every time I'm ha- that happened, I was just like, hit me, hit me. Mm-hmm. Uh, like, I stopped noting him down after a while just because I was like, my notes are going to be too big. <laughs> I, I, I loved uh, uh, Igor's. Um, reference to obviously his his um name well part part of his namesake uh which is the young frankenstein igor uh you know the whole like reach into a bucket of uh of brains labeled very insane please tell me you've seen young frankenstein i'm not sure that i have actually oh my god it's it is possibly one of the best mel brooks movies are we gonna? Are we gonna have to do an episode on that for the Patreon? All three of you. Hello. <laughs> it's like it's it's unfair for us to suggest Patreon content because at this point you can base it, if you're on our Patreon, you probably like follow us and you can probably you can probably just hit us up for something. No, Justin, Justin, don't tell them that there's <laughs> secret Patreon content because they they would never know. <laughs> Alternately, alternately, we could make content and put it on the Patreon and also tell people about the Patreon and then maybe people will subscribe to it. I'm just saying. Yeah. Anyway, uh, th- th- I think that you're not wrong that there's a lot of Hammer films in this, Justin, but I think that it is through the lens of, uh, of Young Frankenstein because it is because Young Frankenstein is very much parodying 
uh, the the Hammer films genre. Do we want to talk about buttons? Yeah. Because, oh boy, did I have buttons here. Yeah, you've got a lot of them. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I can share if you if you all want to share them. Um, Go for it. Well, one of, one of the first is, it's what Agnes and Nanny having a conversation, and it's, but they can run away, uh, really, on foot with a family and no money. Mostly, they never try. Most people put up with things, Agnes. Mm-hmm. Which is um, that's that's definitely a button, and I, I really also liked Granny, the kind of Granny versus Oats, and specifically Granny critiquing the both sidesism of modern omnianism. So we've got we use crushing arguments now and long pointed debates. I suppose well, there are two sides to every question. What do you do when one of them is wrong? I meant that we are enjoying to see things from the other person's point of view. You mean that from the point of view of a torturer, torture is all right? And then later on, there's a comment of, it seems that if you seize evil now, you have to wring your hands and say, oh, dearie me, we must debate this. <laughs> and boy, that that particular um, button has aged well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I liked the little bit about uh, mythology is just the folk tales of people who won. Uh, and then a, a sort of a, a callback to something that really got Justin early in the in the series. Uh, when Nanny's talking to King Varence and says, I remember when you were just a man in a funny hat. And he responds, I still am, Nanny. It's just that this one's a lot heavier. <laughs> yeah, that's that's a good set of lines. <laughs> Poor Varence. Poor Varence, indeed. He's had a he's had a rough time of it over the past few books. I hope yeah. he can like have a relaxing bath or something. <laughs> yeah, he needs to, he he. I think he needs to find out that like what he should be what he should be doing is like he should be at unseen university or something. <laughs> <laughs> he really should not be running a kingdom. He does not seem well fit for it. Yeah, leave, leave, or at um, least he should be running a different country. Yes, I mean you know. Just leave um, uh, McGrath in charge. I feel like that's slowly what's happening. <laughs> I feel like I veterinary would 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 like variants at least as like a useful idiot. Yeah. Um. The other one that I really liked was uh, being human means judging all the time. Mm-hmm. Well, except that you also left out the mercy is a fine thing, but judging comes first. Otherwise, you don't know what you're being merciful about. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's also a good line. A lot, a lot of buttons in this book. The whole dialogue between between Oates and Granny is fascinating because really, like, there's no... In previous books, Granny would just sort of win eventually. And I feel mm-hmm. like there's really no... Like, both of them come out of it stronger as opposed to Granny winning this that particular discussion. Yeah, yeah and I think that makes it a little bit better than it would be in, like, previous books. Because, mm-hmm. like, Omniism is shown to be, like, it's sort of, like, I don't know, feeble now, but it's, like, it's it, it's not presented as, like, that, it, it, it's, it's shown that it's, like, it doesn't have a lot of the teeth that it used to have, but it's not saying that's a bad thing, necessarily. Because mm-hmm. it's, like, oh, Omnians, aren't they the ones who burn everything? No, we're, we're past that now. Yeah. <laughs> now we just debate them. Yeah. So I have a question. Okay. Is Granny the doctor? <sighs> Granny is a self-insert portion of the author. 
I mean, just like with the way that like like the way that Granny solves problems, yeah, and has like insane protagonist energy. Is Granny a Time Lord? She might be. Hmm. And the way that she like she's kind of indestructible too. <laughs> and like powered by like at least in some small way seems to have like like is a near mythic figure. Mm-hmm. Um, has clever solutions that spring out of relatively obscure powers. Yeah. I'm just saying, it's close to Doctor Who. What's her sonic screwdriver then? Headology. <laughs> a withering gaze. The hat. That's better than a fez, at least. <laughs> Accurate. Whereas Nanny's power is the ability to spontaneously create a mob. At a moment's notice. Oh, my favorite line for that book is like when Danny's doing that. But don't tell any of them that it's required. It's just the thing. I'm just like, damn, damn. That's that hit me harder. And make sure make sure that this person brings the beer and this person brings the. But it, it's got to be spontaneous, boys. Mm-hmm. That was amazing. Yeah. I mean, overall, I really like this book. Like what what I liked about this book is like. It's a very focused story. Mm-hmm. There isn't like really a stray dangling plot thread that sort of just like loops around at the end. It's all sort of going in the same direction for the most part, <laughs> which is, I think, cleaner <laughs> than some witches books. Literally for a large chunk of it, too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And yeah, it's it's like it's good comedy. I don't think it's particularly as deep as some books that we've read, mm-hmm. but it's like I, I think it's like to be a mid-tier Discworld book is to be an exceptionally entertaining novel, yeah. which you can aspire to be worse things. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, like overall, it's like we get all, we get like more witches interactions with, uh, and like Agnes getting uh, inserted in there means we get new combinations of characters interacting and they're all fun. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I also really like that for all of the references that we have, the take on vampires is actually, I feel like, very interesting and creative that the the vampire none of the vampires that we see other than like the the lackeys are kind of stock vampire characters. They they've all got kind of something interesting going on. Well, I think they're all like they are all various stock vampire archetypes mm-hmm. yeah but they've, like, all, they've all kind of got a twist on them you know the the old master you know it was uh the the concept of him being sporting right that he just has the has the holy water and stakes lying around because it's fun he, he must have been playing a lot of castlevania <laughs> yes. I, I, so we're gonna go on a bit about this in a moment <laughs> oh yeah I, I did like all of the like lacrimosa and Stuff like that. That was funny. I love the younger vampires, um, especially Lacrimosa, calling out the, like, you know, am I going to be a child forever, daddy? <laughs> like, I've been an adult for 200 fucking years. Am I still going to be your, like, twee little girl 200 years from now? I don't Big think so. energy. Yeah. <laughs> That's what I forgot to watch this Halloween. I forgot to watch the interview with the vampire. 
Oh. <laughs> that might have to be something I uh, I correct soon. I think another part that with with uh, Granny that I did like, and but also it shows off just Terry acknowledging how much Granny's power has crept. Uh, Oates is concerned that she's gone off by herself to fight the the, von, the the vampires, and the Lanker residents are just like, "Why should we care what happens to monsters?" <laughs> yeah. But, you know, I, the, I think that he was really trying to sort of textually struggle with, with Granny, figuring out what he wanted to do with her over the last couple of books with her. And, you know, it sort of encapsulates it in if Granny didn't have someone to beat, she'd probably beat herself. Mm-hmm. Yep. And all she really needs is, like, one inciting ocean of, like, I'm going to go spiral. Mm-hmm. And it turns out it was like, oh, it was just a magpie stealing a card. Yeah. And, like, if she had, it's one of those cases of, like, if she had literally, like, done any form of communication to ask about this, this would not have been how it went. But yeah, no. If she, had act, if she had acted like a reasonable person who most Terry Pratchett protagonists are. Yeah. Yeah. But instead, she got caught up in herself. She, mm-hmm. she let herself be subject to narratives. And depression. Oh, no. Yeah. Yeah, but also like what happens when you don't invite the 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 evil witch to the um to the baby naming? Well, she shows up anyways that's and curses true. them. Right, right. <laughs> like and and that's I think the thing where Granny didn't go in uninvited because I think that that was part of the the spiral type thing there is that if she had shown up uninvited then she would be the evil witch at that point, right? She'd be fulfilling that piece of narrative mm-hmm. instead. Mm-hmm. One of one of my favorite bits from this is actually has nothing to do with the vampires at all, but it does have to do with Granny. Mm-hmm. Um, so we get another like Granny confronting death in the middle of the night scene that we've had one where I believe she played cards against death. Mm-hmm. Cripple Mr. Onion, I think. Um, mm-hmm. and this time we've got the scene with, with Mrs. Ivy and the, you know, accident leading to the difficult birth, shall we say. Mm-hmm. I really love that scene and, you know, and partly that it is part of this like string of scenes throughout the books with Granny in them that if I recall correctly, this is not the last time that we have Granny in a barn at midnight waiting for death. Hmm. Yeah. And I think, I feel like this one is particularly good. Uh, And uh, especially the, the musing on like whether granny and the midwife should ask Mr. Ivy. Uh, And Mm -hmm. the quote there was something like, you know, do you, do you hate Mr. Ivy? Like what, you know, what would you, why would you ask him to make that sort of choice? Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. That's what witches are for. Yeah. Um, I also love that uh, the, the calling out vampirism as a pyramid scheme. <laughs> Which, oh my god. Gosh, yeah. The, it's like in the, in the, the whole, okay, we have to kill the... Or the I, mean, I mean, it is. Because you, if, you, if you kill the person at the top, all the other vampires die. Mm-hmm. <laughs> oh, oh, I did also like the whole bit about, you know, you, you cut off their head and stake them in the heart. And then it's like, I mean, that works for everybody. 
Yeah, and all <laughs> and all of the methods of killing the vampire involve like cutting Lemons. off the head or staking staking the heart or whatever. And it's like still works for everyone. <laughs> Terry also has what is possibly one of the best single word puns <laughs> in the entire series in this book. Oh, boy. <laughs> Cluster suck. <laughs> I don't know how he got that past the editors. Oh, God, it's so good. I'm so glad he did. <laughs> okay, so I love the fact that, like, the key to defeating another vampire is awakening the older vampire, because this is the most <laughs> Castlevania shit ever. <laughs> it's so... I just love it. It's just like... like Oh, how do we solve this problem? Oh, of course, we resurrect Dracula. Uh-huh. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> this is how every problem starts. And oh my God, thank you. <laughs> like this, like this specific trope, you didn't have to resurrect Dracula, but you did. I was just, I was just looking up when the first Castlevania game. Okay. Yeah, it was 80s. Yeah, so this may well be inspired by Castlevania. Oh, I, I mean, it's a Hammer Films trope mm-hmm. completely as well. Yeah. Um, like, Dracula always gets resurrected or comes back from the dead in some way at the start of the movie. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I, I would not put it past Terry to have played at least one Castlevania game, though. I Oh, God, that that is, that is delightful, if only just for... Wait, why is... Yeah, most of the good Castlevania games have come out before this book, so. <laughs> like, half the series has come out before this book. Hmm. And, yeah, God, that, that, that's... I don't want to play Castlevania. Yeah, <laughs> like, I, I don't want to play Castlevania, but I do want to play, like, a Castlevania-ish RPG, mm-hmm. um, which I have those, but... Welcome to our Castlevania podcast. <laughs> I mean, it would have the most banger soundtrack. I am also reserving but, time near the end to talk about the Feagles because... I mean, let's talk about the Feagles. Okay. Yeah, let's talk about the Feagles. I, they sort of come out of nowhere. Yeah, I forgot this I, was where the book they came in. Like, I thought they came in later. They don't really make sense. <laughs> <laughs> um, but why would we expect them to? I mean, they're, they're picked C's. Um, and they they speak in they they speak in Glaswegian mixed with Gaelic. Yeah, I understand <laughs> approximately five percent of their dialogue. <laughs> you, you get it from context clues. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I think that Terry will tone down their language significantly for the YA books that they're in. They're so good, and I love I that, that I, I love that he shows instead of tells how dangerous they are by showing that Grebo is deathly afraid of them yes grebo who ate a vampire also we're 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 back to good grebo content too (laughs) yeah it's just it's a murderous cat that's all we need Mm -hmm. yep yeah i i love the feagles um i i think that they're a very funny component and and yeah it's sort of like they appear and then they're explained it's explained why they're appearing which is basically the the vampire's the new vampires are driving out all of the, like, in sort of a fascist way, uh, all of the old races from the, um, from Uberwald. Yeah. 
I love that they have a complex understanding of contract law. That's confusing to me for reasons that we'll get into later in later books, because boy, I'm not used to seeing them be okay with contracts and law. Yeah. They, uh, we're, we're going to hit amazing Maurice soon, right? Yes. I feel like we can get into this when we talk about that book a little bit more, but I feel like this, the Feagles here are in some ways a prototype for the rats in mm. Maurice as well, that the the like concept of the Feagles kind of branched off and part of it went to the rats and part of it went to the Feagles that we see in the later books. And, and the anarchist and chaos energy sp- stayed with the Feagles, yeah. Right. <laughs> Spoiler. <laughs> no thoughts, head empty. <laughs> <laughs> anytime anytime a future book gets talked about on the show listeners i just like go to a happy place where i think about like about two years from now where you won't have any more reading assignments yeah when I, like two years from now when i'm like when i'll be done i'll understand all these jokes and i can live in peace and just go lie down in my coffin <laughs> only to be awakened in three to five years when there's a new book series for us to do and they 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 do the the ritual to resurrect me and I come back more terrifying than ever. <laughs> Excellent. With the widow's peak. Um so what uh, is there anything we want to pull out that stood up particularly well to the test of time? Honestly, all the genre shit has just like I vampires aren't just as popular now as ever. They might be more popular than when this book came out like hold on, when was this? 1998. This was pretty peak vampire. I mean, yeah, like, Interview with the Vampire came out, like, four years ago. Yeah. Um, and it's, like, there's, I'm not, like, I'm not thinking, like, what what other big vampire, be- oh, fucking Blade, too. Oh, yeah. God, I would have loved to, like, like, there are movies that, like, I'm, like, I am sure I would have loved to watch Terry Pratchett, watch with Terry Pratchett. Blade would have been one of them. <laughs> <laughs> um, Buffy would have been running as well. Mm, yeah. God, when did that, st- that started in 97? Okay, yeah. Mm-hmm. So this would have been around season two of Buffy. Oh, gosh. But yeah, I mean, like, it's it's all like, you know, vampire, like, like you know, it's like, it's a thing like vampires, go, like, there's an in and out of mainstream, like, of how mainstream they are. And I think this is like, this was published under one of those, like, times when it was super mainstream. Mm-hmm. And we are reading it during a time where it's, I, I, I don't think there's... I'm trying to think, like, there's not any huge vampire meat. Oh, I mean, what we do in the shadows, obviously, yeah. but, <laughs> like, I don't think there's, like, a ton of huge, like, vampire media in, but it's... Castlevania. Castlevania, oh, like, Castlevania just ended, but yeah. It's, yeah. Yeah, but it's like, you know, we're in that, like, we're in another period where it's like vampires are, vampires are cool. Um yeah. And they're always cool, but it's like, it's the popular consciousness of it. And so it's like, and... I think we're definitely in an era that, like, oh, yeah, those old horror movies are fun. Mm-hmm. So it's like, this is a very, like, this is a book that has aged exceptionally well, I think, in terms of its humor. Uh, except for one thing, which we'll talk about. Yeah. The buttons, I think, have also aged really, really outstandingly in this. Um, the musings on both sidesism. um the thing with you know, evil is thinking of other people as things. Mm-hmm. You know, the take 
the the various takes on morality that come from granny of you know there's no gray just white that's gotten grubby mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. i think that all of those have aged outstandingly yeah i mean you know I, i'm probably the the of the three of us tonight i'm probably the least capable of of talking about sort of deep vampire stuff but vampirism is sort of like the the easy choice as opposed to the right choice um Mm -hmm. you know you're 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 choosing to to lose your your soul but to gain all of these benefits you know and immortality and all that kind of stuff well i guess that brings us to things that haven't aged well Mm. yes do you do you want to i this is a one that i think that we've done before in books but if you want to take the lead go right ahead Mm mm-hmm well, which which we've got two things here. Which of them should I t- take on first? Because I think the the first is that we've got Agnes again. Yeah. Um, previously, we have seen Agnes in Masquerade, which, if I recall correctly, you did not actually finish, Justin. Um, yeah, it was a, it was a DNF because of the the the, the fat jokes. Yeah, and there are fewer here. Mm-hmm. They are still there. Um. I actually found it more frustrating in some ways than Masquerade because even even though Masquerade like had me kind of dropping dropping out of immersion constantly with the fat jokes, I got really frustrated in this one because there's a, a line at the beginning where Terry seems to understand that these jokes are cruel. Like there's a line of those who are inclined to casual cruelty say that inside a fat girl is a thin girl and a lot of chocolate. So he re- he's recognizing that these jokes are unkind, but he keeps on fucking making them. I mean, he does the same thing with racist jokes too earlier on mm-hmm. in the series. Yeah, I, I and I'm, I'm like I'm not sure we have anything new to say about it. Yeah, um, it's just like it, it sucks. And there's also the aspect that you know, granted we haven't seen Sybil in you know in a couple of you know in quite a while although we're mm-hmm. going to see substantially more of her soon but you know, it's it's not like Terry is incapable of writing a fat character in a like good or reasonably respectful way that we have Sybil where it's generally portrayed as her being powerful or you know commanding mm-hmm but oh god with agnes it's just just frustrating mm-hmm. yeah i mean it, it didn't take me out quite as much on this one um partly because it's like it's bouncing around a lot more um it's still like mm, and that definitely affected my enjoyment of the book but i don't think it was as like for me at least it wasn't as bad in this one yeah they're they're a lot sparser. Oh. i have a lot more i i I still have a bunch of lines that are highlighted with Terry no, but it's uh it's still better it's better than Masquerade, but readers, you know, if that's something that really would make a book unreadable to you, then you might want to give this book a pass. The other one which I don't think I'm as I don't think I'm qualified to really talk about, but like I think it needs to be said is like the way that Agnes and Perdita's are written i don't think it's bad but it's also it's just one of those things that i'm like i don't know how i feel about this i don't feel great about it but i don't think it's bad yeah 
um, because it's it's kind of verging on you know less you know less like the make believe that we had in Masquerade and more you know what we would kind of conceive of as somebody having a plural personality. And I may not be using the correct terminology there even um, because I am certainly not qualified to talk about this in any detail. But it's it's interesting in that it both like fits into some common tropes regarding that sort of personality, but then also I feel like maybe subverts them as well. It's it's really um it just it just leaves me kind of like with a side eye and a feeling that I would love to hear somebody who is is more qualified to speak on the subject hear their take on it. Yeah. yeah. Through having spoke with some people who are who have plural personalities and like who have described this, it's obviously a very different phenomenon for people, for different people. But it's like I the way that Agnes and Perdita are presented, we'd use different terms for it now, but like Agnes is fronting most of the time, and like Perdita fronts in certain situations, like when things get a little too distressing and it, it's I mean, typically it's created as like a trauma response from what I understand, but it can be a whole other thing. And I don't think it's terrible. Like, I don't think it's bad. I think it's like, it's something of like, it, it was a common fictional trope and reading it, reading this depiction of it is not as cringeworthy as some things I've, some iterations of it I've read. Yeah. I think it helps that Agnes is a protagonist. And it helps that this is not something that she's made fun of for, um, mm-hmm. either by the other characters or the book itself. That it, it is portrayed entirely as a positive thing. It's what allows her to resist and fight the vampires. And I think that that's something that really, really helps. Like if we had Nanny or Granny mocking her for, you know, that that you know, silly Perdita girl in your head or something like that. It would feel a lot different, but that doesn't happen. Mm-hmm. Yeah, at most she gets sort of like some questioning side eyes from from Nanny and Granny, but otherwise they let her go about her business. Are we good? Yeah, I think I think that's the... Those are the two things that at least made me side eye. Mm-hmm. Question how well they've aged. Yeah. Uh, any other little bits you'd like to clean up or fix okay so i was so excited when we got casanunda i love casanunda (laughs) casanunda is fantastic he's amazing i love him and he's only there for two fucking pages granted we have nanny's like maybe fling thing with igor but please give me more nanny og casanunda content right now like Mm -hmm. i need this Broadly, you know, I think that this is one of the books that Terry should have handed off to a sensitivity reader, but we've already discussed that. Hmm. Uh, honestly, I think the only, I think that really the only thing we have from this is a Van Helsing, is like a Van Helsing XP who gets murdered in the first act, but I'm like, eh, I'm okay <laughs> with, I, I don't need it. I just think it would be fun. Mm-hmm. But yeah, overall, you know, like I like other than what's been suggested, like nah, I think I, like I'm pretty solid on this book. Hmm. It doesn't need to be a great book. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it can just be a fun read book to read. Yeah, yeah. Other po- references to Discworld that you pulled out. 
the bloody stupid Johnson organ. Yes, B.S. Johnson. God, the, the inscription, listen to their children of their night, what wonderful music they make. Manufactured by Bergholt, Stutley, Johnson, Ankmore Pork. It's so good. <laughs> I'm just like, and it's just like, it plays like random noises and shit, and I'm like, and it's a horror movie, Foley Chandler. Just like, yeah. Well, and that, but then also the line after it, it's a Johnson she breathed. I haven't got my hands on a Johnson for ages. <laughs> there was a lot of innuendo in this book. Yeah. Uh, I, I checked on L Space because I thought there would be a, an organ nerd on there. Uh, and uh, they commented on the, the organ registers. Uh, if you're not familiar with them, they're the different, uh, they're the names for the different plugs and things that you pull out for the different sounds they make and the height of the tone they produce. So, uh, owing to the nature of sound, uh, a thunderclap 14, for example, w- is very rarely found in real life because it would, first of all, be out of tune because most registers are powers of two, uh, and also very low. Interesting. Interesting. But, you know, it's a B.S. Johnson organ, so. And I love... Justin, I really love that you are. I'm really enjoying seeing you encounter all of the BS Johnson bits, like <laughs> in real time. That, yeah. um, like BS Johnson has like soaked into my psyche at this point, mm-hmm. and seeing you discover all of these jokes, it just it brings me joy. And this is the first, but not the last, Igor. Excellent. Parts uh-huh. of Igor have been in the family for centuries. <laughs> I also just like I we went through it, but all the all the, all the callbacks to small gods and omniism mm-hmm. yeah. is good. Yeah, like we have we have all of the oats oh, quoting all these things from Brutha, and it's just Brutha being really tired. <laughs> <laughs> it's great. Oh, so so a thing with Casanunda. Uh, so now that we've gotten into more of the kind of nuances of dwarf gender, I think there's a lot of space for some like potentially really interesting headcanons about Casanunda. That he's in a lot of ways gender nonconforming in a you know, along the same lines of Cherry, uh in you know, in the watch. Hmm. And Yeah, I buy it. Yeah, you know, that he, I, I would love to see, I would love to see the two of them interact. Casanova is definitely uh, culturally nonconforming. Yeah, yeah. But, you know, he's, he's presenting as decidedly male in, mm-hmm. you know, along the lines of how Cheery is presenting as decidedly female. Mm-hmm. Also, I just, I just want more Casanova and Nanny Og, <laughs> please. So good. So, uh, do we want to have one more vampire corner? Let's see some fun stuff. I mean, there's all of the um, various noteworthy ellipses. Um, so, uh, the the name Magpir puns both on Magpie and on Magyar, an equestrian tribe that settled in what is now Hungary and parts of Romania during the ninth century. Although Bram Stoker's original text actually has Dracula explicitly identifying himself as a mender, member of the, uh, I'm going to butcher this word, Zelki, um, uh, a lot of uh, books and movies portray Dracula as Magyar. Yeah, um, I will not go into the, histor- the historiosity 
of um, Dracula um, <laughs> because <laughs> I do not want to make this a three-hour podcast. <laughs> Patreon content. I, I um, welcome to our Dracula podcast. If you go to if you um, if you if you want the historicity of Vlad the Impaler, um, there's an excellent uh, little mini series on the YouTube channel Extra Credits uh, for Vlad the Impaler that goes over a lot of his actual life. And um, if you want to know, if you want to ask stuff about Dracula, the book, hit me up. Um, There is a fantastic, uh, there's some fantastic stuff that we know because we have an early first draft of Dracula. There's a lot of cut content from the book, including Dracula having a secret volcano base. Goodness. Yeah, he has a secret volcano base. There is a cool lady detective journalist who gets cut from the book. <laughs> this makes me feel like Dracula is a Bond villain. Oh, yeah. No, it, it's Dracula was like the original supervillain. I mean, um, and he's like he, he's like the original supervillain. He's great. Um, and like, yeah, there's there's a whole bunch of stuff that gets cut from the actual Dracula novel that gets really cool. Um, there's also the Icelandic translation. Um, where drag- where a satanic cult is introduced. Um, Wild. And Bram Stoker declares in the intro that all of it is real. <laughs> uh, it's Dracula is sort of like kind of my favorite, one of my favorite books to just like know weird shit about. Uh, yeah, no, it's just, it's a weird book. <laughs> um, there's a scene in the hall in, a, uh, in the castle at one point, Agnes has shown uh, a series of family portraits uh, and Terry explains that Agnes has shown the evolution of vampires from the Strix or Harpy uh, to through Harry Monsters, Lugosi, Byronic Bastard, and what way, better way to demonstrate this than a succession of family portraits? Yeah. yeah. Well, there's a moment where some of the vampires are talking about a Mr. and Mrs. Harker. <laughs> they're like, oh, they were such a lovely couple as they were, like, they traveled through Uberwald. Mm-hmm. Um, which was very funny for me. Uh, the, another favorite line that I just had of this book, just because it made me think of Sideshow Bob, and it might have been that, it honestly might have been Terry Pollock from The Simpsons. Um, there's a line, There's a. there are a hundred pathways to Ohm. Unfortunately, I think someone left a rake lying across most of them. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's a good line. The uh, Malleus Maleficarum uh, is, is cited. <laughs> that's, yeah, and and, and the, that was written in part by the Count. Mm-hmm. Which inspires yet another crisis of faith. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Which is fantastic. Oh, Gribo does, in fact, murder another vampire. God, I love that, though. It's just like, yeah, Gribo can murder a vampire. That's so much better than him being a weird lecher thing. <laughs> um do we want to sing the Ankh Morpork National Anthem? Uh, I, I will plug in the official recording at the end. Okay. <laughs> but yes, that was that's one of my favorite footnotes, which um, uh, national anthems all have the same second verse, which goes at some length until everyone remembers the last line of the first verse and sings as loudly as they can. Um, and then Terry wrote the national anthem, and it was performed on radio. Beautiful. It's brilliant. Round world stuff. Uh, I don't know how many of you remember the streamer uh, who sadly passed away from cancer, uh, Total Biscuit, but uh, I found a very early tweet confirming that his name was taken from this book. 
which is a very funny reference. Excellent. And then at one point, Igor says, they've killed Scraps, the bastards, which probably is a uh, South Park reference. It's definitely fun to be getting into the books where we we can start to actually recognize the references. Mm-hmm. Um, anything else we want to cover? Um, or are we good? Uh, yeah, I think I'm good here. Uh, ratings? Yeah. Uh, Anna, what would you give this book? I'm going to give it three out of the four feagles required to carry a cow. Justin? I will give it 4,802 grains of rice out of 5,900 grains to be counted. Oh, 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 oh. I do like that Count Von Count uh, is actually kind of mythologically correct. He has to count everything. Uh, and I would give this book seven for a secret never to be told. All right. Next. Uh, what's uh, our next book? Our next book is book 24, The Fifth Elephant. <laughs> because that's not a reference at all. <laughs> <clears throat> all right. Got it looked up here. Everyone knows that the world is flat and supported on the backs of four elephants. But weren't there supposed to be five Indeed there were. So where is it? When duty calls, Commander Vimes of the Ankhmore Port Constabulary answers, even when he doesn't want to. He's been invited to attend a royal function as both detective and diplomat. The one role he relishes, the other requires, well, ruby tights. Of course, where cops, even those clad in tights go, alas, crime follows. An attempted assassination and a theft soon lead to a desperate chase from the low halls of Discworld royalty, to the legendary fat mines of Uberwald, where lard is found in underground seams along with tusks and teeth and other precious ivory artifacts. It's up to the dauntless vibes, bothered as usual by a familiar cast of Discworld inhabitants, you know, trolls, dwarves, werewolves, vampires, and such, to solve the puzzle of the missing pachyderm. Which, of course, he does. After all, solving mysteries is his job. This is new vimes. This is, uh, the, I don't th- <laughs> Okay, this is interesting. It's uh feels very gentlemanly detect gentleman detective adventure novel. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Yep. Interesting. And it's more Uberwald right away. Yeah. Yeah. And it also introduces some things that will become important in much later books too. Anyway. Uh, and and there's no way that um fifth element fifth element versus fifth elephant was not a fucking reference or joke or something because that movie came out in 1997 and i'm sure that terry watched it it's probably like fifth element fifth element element elephant Hmm. but listeners can look forward to all of us making that pun constantly or just making that flub constantly yes that too flubbing that pun there we go The Complete Discography is an independent production by four people who just really like these books. All opinions expressed during the show are our own. All quotes from primary or related works are used under the fair use doctrine and remain copyrighted by their original owners. The music from this podcast is sourced from Incompetech. That info can be found in the show notes. The rest of it is distributed under a Creative Commons 4.0 attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives license. Share it. 
please share it. But say where you got it, don't make money off it, and don't change it. Connect with the show at Pod, which is A-T-U-I-N underscore P-O-D, or email us at atuin.pod at gmail.com. <laughs>